Welcome to the Mass Startup Podcast. This podcast explores the journeys behind some of Africa's emerging entrepreneurs, startups, and small businesses. The Mass Startup Podcast profiles the most talented creators, impactful entrepreneurs, and high-performing professionals with the purpose to drive insights, learnings, and tactics to help you build what you believe in. I'm Wiza Jalakasi. I am a, a digital financial services um, entrepreneur specializing in mobile uh, and more recently cryptocurrency. I think, I think I'm qualified enough to, to say that in public. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I just love tech, tech in Africa, building things and writing our own story for the future. Yeah, so I've I've had you on the podcast before, and you you called this possibly like a follow up episode. And the one question I've had for you specifically, because you know so much about the ecosystem as a whole, um, whether it's tech, um, what's happening with businesses and entrepreneurs across the continent, um, the things that affect them. What's your assessment of the African startup ecosystem um, post COVID? But also post Stripe acquisition um, of Paystack. Cool, it's a loaded question. Um, I think COVID has been good for specific verticals. Okay, no, actually, let me let me start that again. This year has been tough for everyone, and mm-hmm. like just like business-wise, personally, emotionally, physically, it's been a very challenging year for everyone. And um, I don't want to minimize the the significance of that because I see it and I've experienced it too. So I want to start by acknowledging that and say like, yo, this has been a very difficult year for the world in general, the human Mm -hmm. race as a species and um, everything that comes attached to that. Uh, Now, that being said, it hasn't been an absolute disaster in every sense of the word because there have been some positive outcomes for some types of businesses, um, for some people's personal lives, for there are many different things, you know, it's come as a mixed bag, right? Uh, but like for technology specifically, I think it's been a fantastic year, first and foremost, for e commerce. Oh, e commerce people are like, woo, definitely having, having a great time. I've experienced some of this. Yeah, <laughs> because like the, the behavioral change that may have maybe taken place over the next five years has been accelerated and has like been compressed because mm. all of a sudden it's like this is only the safe way to procure groceries. So I remember at the start of the crisis in Nairobi, a traditional supermarket brand um, called Tuskies that has like branches um, all over the country, um, they started their e-commerce project. And the time at the time that the director tweeted, he tweeted this like I think April, they were doing two hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars a week in GMV from e-commerce, like Whoa. gross volume of sales, right? Like mm. people mostly within Nairobi, a city of. Four million people, max, really. Um, a lot of them in extreme poverty. So you've got like a middle class of one or two um, million people. And they are ordering groceries from one supermarket brand worth $232,000 a week. Mm. I was like, whoa. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and I think from, from a South African perspective, sort of similar yeah. is the growth of bottles. Oh. Um, so They just got bought out, right? Yes. Just got acquired by <laughs> by pick and pay, and this is something that wouldn't have happened because, um, in spite of COVID, right? Yeah. So before everything happened with lockdowns and all of that, yeah. they were just selling alcohol on their platform. Yeah. 
And COVID happened and, you know, South Africa went extreme and banned alcohol sales. They pivoted to groceries. Mm. And six months later, they've been acquired by the company that they were partnered with Mm. to provide groceries because of the insane explosion in sales that they actually experienced. Mm. I'm looking at a graph right here from um, Ububele's newsletter at ububele.substack.com. I tell people in the ecosystem, like, this is, this is one of the, the, the places where you can get very smart about what's happening in um, SA's tech, tech ecosystem. Yep. Like, Oopstar writes a very good newsletter. Um, and more sites, according to his stats, more sites have been added in 2020 than were added in all of 2019. Um, since April, there's been an incredible growth on all of the e-commerce platforms, like um, Shopify, PrestaShop. Open cart people moving to this because that's the only way that you can sell things. Um, in Nairobi, Glovo, which is this uh, European uh, on-demand delivery um, super app, I'm using that in quotes because <laughs> it's not a word you can throw around carelessly. Um, they saw tremendous growth, such that when Kenya's national lockdown was implemented, Glovo riders were given permits as exemptions to be able to deliver critical groceries, goods, and services, mm. including like medicine, right? Um, another industry that I think has seen a huge benefit from all of this has been telemedicine. Um, I was speaking to um, a gentleman earlier in the year on a panel who's actually the, the co-founder of a South African um, telemedicine startup. He described it as like regulation that they have been trying to change for the last five years and would have taken them in their view five to 10 years to change has changed overnight because of COVID-19 um, sure. in South Africa. And like I see a similar thing in Kenya. The first time I got sick during lockdown, I went on an app called Livia Dawa. And then like, you know, I had a virtual consultation. It cost me the equivalent of 10 US dollars. But like, you know, the person was able to diagnose me. Uh, and that's actually how I found out that like I might have COVID symptoms. Because mm. uh, like I've, I've gotten COVID at least once already. Um, and thankfully I've survived it. <laughs> My symptoms have always been mild. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you know, there's that. And then lastly, I think like fintech. Fintech has, oh my God. The fintech money, explosion. <laughs> all money companies are just like laughing all the way to the bank right now because mm. cash is perceived as dirty in, mm. in, in the context of a world that's going through a, uh, a hygiene-related pandemic, really. Um even though the science doesn't necessarily like support and back that, um, people's psyches are tuned to like, okay, I must avoid this disease at all costs. So um, I've seen a trend all over the continent of retail venues no longer accepting cash, people only doing card or um, uh, the mobile financial service in that country. And obviously for me as, a, as an operator in the space, it's been extremely exciting to see. We're seeing tremendous um, volume growth of all of our, our partners. Um, I work at a company called Hover. We do um, USSD automation, um, basically analytics and enhancing the functionality of USSD codes. Uh, we have customers in Africa, uh, Pakistan, India as well. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, we're seeing tremendous growth in how they're using our technology. And then like there's like external signals um, from other players in the industry and like them publishing their stats. So for example, um, MTN Group, um, across a number of their opcos, I think they have at least 11 mobile money opcos on the continent. They instituted a policy for free transactions in some countries. I know Uganda and Ghana were amongst them for a certain amount. And like that has led to, you know, 
2x, 3x overnight growth uh, in consumption of those services. And what has happened is that now, as they start to roll back these policies, because it's, it's ultimately unsustainable to do that for too long, people's behavior is not changing because mm. they, are, they are used to doing things in that way. So same thing with, with fintech, with telemedicine, with e-commerce, and I think e-commerce is really going to stick. Um, Jumia is now back at uh, Jumia's market cap today. Uh, $1.4 billion Jumia's market cap today. Mm. Jumia is a unicorn again. Mm. Um, six months ago, Jumia's market cap, their share price, six months ago, exactly six months ago from today, on the 27th of April, 2020, uh, Jumia's stock price was $4.43. Its current stock price is $17.87. That's insane. Yeah. So, it's, it's just been fascinating to see. Yeah. Um, it's exciting for me as an operator in the space. It's terrible sometimes to think about like how bad the same reality has been for a group of people who are not in my in my space and in my yeah. environment. So, you know, it's mixed feelings. On one side, I'm excited. On the other hand, I can't ignore the horrible effects that this pandemic has brought um, on our society today. And yeah, it's a weird so, place. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, and it's also just, it's a diversity of changes, right? So there's big ones and there's small ones. Small yeah. ones, for example, in South Africa, it was actually very difficult to get someone to use their tap on the, on, so the, the contactless uh, payments. Yeah, contactless yeah. payments, um, yeah. NFC, um, using the card just to tap onto the machine. Yeah. There was a trust factor that most people had around that. They, they didn't feel it was safe. Yeah, I mean, that's, but that's, this is completely flipped that now. And people are just like so happy if you say, hey, just tap um, and stuff like that. And it's small things, but like there's also massive things. And one of the big things I think um, that I was looking at um, recently was just this video from Vox. Mm. And they were talking about just um, how detrimental this has been for global poverty, you know, mm. um, fighting global co- yeah, poverty. Yeah. And just the financials behind the impact of lockdowns, the impact of the pandemic itself. Please tell me more about that number that you found um, that you thought was super interesting. All right. So I'm looking at the the Wall Street Journal right now, and I'm just going to read the headline verbatim so that you'd not come and say, Wiza Jalakasi is exaggerating on my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The headline says, um, coronavirus has thrown around 100 million people into extreme poverty, the World Bank estimates. Um, Decades of progress have gone into reverse, the worst setback that we've experienced in a generation. The last time that there were numbers even comparable to this was in the 1990s, right? And um, I'm going to share you this link so that you can include it in the show notes because I think it's a very fascinating stats to look at. And there's a hundred plus million, maybe by the end of the year, approaching 150 million people who will be thrown into extreme poverty. Mm. Um, When you look at the John Hopkins data, um, the the John Hopkins University for Medicine in the United States has a coronavirus resource center on the web that I view as one of the most... um, authoritative sources on the, the state of the coronavirus in, in the world today. They have like per country stats for every country. Mm. And they have, as of right now, 42,740,047 cases. 
Um, from those cases, there are like 1.1 million, 1,151,059 uh, deaths, right? Mm. And each and every single one of those deaths is a tragedy, and I don't want to minimize that, right? And, you know, I'm thinking about somebody listening to this, this podcast who's maybe lost somebody from COVID-19. I'm, I'm not trying to invalidate the significance of that loss. It's painful to lose people, and nobody wants to see people die. Mm. However, one of the more interesting challenges of leadership is having to make these macro decisions that affect people um, at significant scale. And at a certain point, it becomes a game of numbers, right? Um, there's a philosophical thought experiment called the trolley problem that I think like illustrates this, where there's a train track and mm. you have the chance to switch the position of the train track and direct the train in either of two directions. And if you switch, if you keep leave it as is, it's going to like run over this one person. But if you switch the trolley, it's going to run over like three people. And maybe those three people are older or whatever else. You know, there's like, there's so many factors that go into a decision about how you're going to choose who's going to live or who's going to die if you're in a position of power. And mm. I have extreme empathy from for the difficulty of being in such a position. And I think it's something that shouldn't be taken for granted. But if you look at the numbers, right, specifically the numbers for Africa, globally, uh, about a million people have died. But in Africa, 40 million people have been thrown into extreme poverty. And when you're extremely poor, and extreme poverty is like you know, under, living under a dollar a day, your quality of life and risk of death like increases significantly. Mm. So I'm of the position that there is a a possibility that there's a world that exists in which more people die from the negative effects, more people in Africa because of our population pyramid. The vast majority of the population is aged under 50. Mm. And people aged under 50 are statistically not dying as much, right? Um, the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic planning scenarios data from the US CDC website indicates an infection, right now the current best estimate indicates an infection fatality rate of 0 0.005 for, uh, this is a ratio, right? For every one person that dies, 0 0.005 people are dying um, globally between the age of 50 and 69. When you look at the ages of 20 to 49, that go number goes down to 0 0.0002. Mm -hmm. Between 0 and 19 years, that number goes down to 0 0.00003. Mm. So, um, most people under age 70, statistically, according to CDC data, and this is one of the most authoritative resources on the matter, are not dying from this disease. Like, mm. you're more likely to die from something else. And when you look at the economic consequences that lockdowns have had, especially on emerging economies like ours, then it's almost as if, and it's, this is a difficult position to hold, it's almost as if more people could die from poverty than they could from the coronavirus on the continent. Mm -hmm. But when you look at like the global trends and what's happening in other countries, I think our leaders are under tremendous political pressure to maintain these systems of lockdown, even though they might not be the most effective. Um, Nigeria, in the past few weeks, there's been a, a tremendous, incredible thing happening. I'm using tremendous like Trump a lot, eh? I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. Thing. I don't like that. That's not all. a good thing. <laughs> I know. But like tremendous is a very like descriptive word and um I have a I, I, I mean it's a really good word, right? For especially for what's happening in Nigeria. Which yeah. is like a phenomenal 
display of young people really going no. We this are is tired. Not like, but people are this dying, bro. Like, people are dying. Imagine this is not okay. Uh, one of the major things I wanted to talk about today was like just like the function of police and other like uh, security uh, arms in, in in governments. Um, the police is supposed to protect you. Mm. Okay, so for context for those listening, we're talking about the um, NSARS uh, campaign. Um, social justice campaign that's been going on in uh, most parts of Nigeria for the last couple of weeks. And young people are tired of being systematically harassed and oppressed by the police, the same people who are Mm. supposed to protect you. Um, When people who are supposed to protect you become your enemy and they're systematically harassing you, there's evidence indicating that um, SARS was collecting $6 million a week from Nigerian youth. What? $6 million a week in terms of cash, laptops, phones, um, all of the people that I've spoken to in Nigeria who are like young males, who are relatively successful for their age vis-a-vis the previous generation, each and every single one of my friends has a story. Mm. Like, I've been stopped by SARS and they did this. I've been stopped by SARS and they did this. So I think it reached a, a breaking point where people were tired, understandably, of going through that, especially in today's economy where things are already tough. Yeah. These are the people who are supposed to protect you. But then there's a flip side to that coin, right? Um, on the flip side, the people who are supposed to protect you are, um, they have incentives to do what they are currently doing. Uh, I have mm. a great friend of mine. Uh, her name is Ndiko, Ndiko Mara, And she has a pretty interesting explanation for how things are the way they are in terms of like African governance. And it's about like the incentive structures. Like when you get into the system, what does the system incentivize you to do? Because mm. you're, you're just a human being. You're just a person, right? Like, you know, you love your family. You're trying to make ends meet. Nobody, nobody like gets into the system. Okay, some people do. But most people don't get into the system like being inherently bad and evil people mm. wanting to hurt others or whatever else. Like, you get into the system and um, you want to, like, survive and exist within that system. So if your superiors tell you, like, I don't care how you do it, but you need to bring me, like, 50,000 naira a week. Um, at first, you might, like, you know, you might start, like, you know, being, like, a regular police person, policing crimes, but you start to realize that, okay, people are willing to pay bribes for some things. Then over time, that becomes a culture. And then after some time, you realize that, like, okay, for petty offenses, maybe you can't negotiate the bribes that you want. Mm. So you push a little bit harder. You push a little bit harder. And when you do that for some time, all of a sudden, it's okay to pull a gun. And this is the perspective I'm imagining of SARS operatives who I don't believe that the Nigerian government goes to go and recruit the most horrible, evil people they can find and have them terrorize young Nigerians mm. um, uh, with intention. I would like to believe that um, there are elements within uh, Nigeria and indeed Africa's leadership that want to see young people prosper. Um, and there are some unique mm. uh, factors and constraints that they are trying to manage uh, due to the political nature of that. So, you know, you yeah. have your people. But anyway... All of a sudden, it becomes okay to, to pull up a gun and point at my students, like, please relieve me of your laptop. Me, in my entire life, your laptop is worth more money than I've ever seen. Yep. So, yeah, that sucks. I mean, there's this, hor- that's obviously horribly wrong. Mm. Um, but when you start to understand the incentive structure that drives it, then you can start to think about some of the more interesting solutions to, to solving it. And I think protests are a fantastic start and they're extremely effective in getting the message across. 
Um, but they also have some adverse effects, like antagonizing some of the stakeholders, like the stars and the, some of the police officers in Nigeria now. Um, I saw an anecdote on Twitter where somebody was complaining about like TVs and air conditioners being ripped off of the wall of their office, and they went to the police to go complain, and the police were like, yeah, but you say we can't shoot anyone, so... Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it, inter- it, it introduces a very um, uh, interesting dynamic that yeah. I think nobody's really prepared to manage. But like, I think the protesters were right in getting, going to those lengths to get the message across. Because time and time again, the Nigerian government has shown its people that it does not care about them. And yeah. that is abundantly clear to anyone watching. So sometimes it's the only way to get the message across. Yeah. I'm optimistic about the future because... Now, with the unfortunate, tragic um, events that took place at the Lekki Tollgate a few days ago, where um, a number of people lost their lives. Yes, because the military were were, were shooting and killing yeah. like peaceful I protesters. The, the most scary thing about that incident, right? And um, I thought the work of I think her name is DJ Switch. Yeah, and she went live on Instagram. Yeah, right, and she documented the entire thing. 160,000 people saw that IG Live. Yeah. And the Nigerian government and army says, this is a shop photoshopped video. <gasps> Bro, I couldn't even believe And everyone it. said, wait, she was on Instagram Live. We trying watched take, this happen. Trying to take the whole And the army said, this is Photoshop. Like, this is a Photoshop video. I, I was like, wait. It. I saw and, the Lagos state governor, Babajide Sanwa Olu, Mm. go on national TV like um, a few days after and like basically deny that anyone had died in the protests. So they don't care about you. They don't care about us. They don't care about themselves. That's... Do you think it's a leadership failure across the continent? And do you think like, you know, I've always predicted that South Africa would get to a point like that, but it wouldn't be about police brutality. It will purely just be like, hey, economic... You've been, like there is no economy anymore. Um, half the young people are sitting at home doing absolutely nothing. Um, the income inequality in South Africa is like unsustainable. Yeah. The most inc- unequal society in the world. That's what we, we've been branded as, right? And having just something just light the fuse for young people to go, okay, wait, what, we're tired now. And I think South Africans aren't angry enough yet. And one day they will be. And I look at stuff like NSARS as being young people going, look, what you built and how you think this will work is not how it's going to work now. Mm. We're tired. We are not our parents. Our parents were, you know, they've made certain decisions around what they can fight for. And I think you you, you put this quote on Clubhouse once, actually. You said, um, if all, if you, something about, if you, if, if all you have is memories, it's hard to think about the future. future yeah. If you have more um, memories than dreams, it's actually pretty hard to think about the future because you're always thinking about the past. And I am struggling to call it a, a failure of leadership explicitly because I think there are like many factors, including the historical context. And I don't want to be so hard on people who inherited post-colonial republics in the mm. midst of chaos at a time where the world was globalizing and we were being like deliberately financially excluded, right? So I think like some of our predecessors have had to deal with um, extreme challenges, divided societies, like, you know, the artifacts of a post-colonial world, 
So to that extent, it's not a leadership failure because it's like historical. Mm. To the extent that it is a leadership failure, there's some things that are difficult to ignore. Um, the incentive structure is just messed, bro. Like when you get into political power in most African societies, if you're not stealing or doing something fishy of some kind, the system starts to like box you out. Mm. You become like an outsider because you're not participating in what the actual culture is. Mm. And um, when we look at our leaders, our political leaders, it's important to recognize that outside of their leadership roles, they are also human beings. They are mothers, fathers, you know, sons, daughters, wives, husbands, and uh, nephews, nieces, uncles, and aunts as well, mm. right? And in the same way that you care about yourself and your loved ones, they also do. Yeah. I am not saying that that is a justification for corruption at scale, but the system incentivizes that type of behavior. So until we change those incentive structures through like redistribution of wealth, I think one of the most compelling tools for that is like the advent of the internet and what it means for young people, because like mm. you know, both you and I are internet entrepreneurs. Our livelihood is based off of creating things for the internet. Oh yeah. Twenty years ago, this would not have been possible. It doesn't matter how smart, <laughs> <laughs> how smart you think you are, or how smart I think I am. Um, I think the internet like allows young people to start to like democratize access to wealth, and over time, as we start to get richer as a people, you know, like I was looking at some stats from the U.S., and I think it's only three percent of U.S. millennials who own. Um, the world's global wealth, as opposed to like I think fifty-seven percent for um, baby boomers, mm. who are like old people who are gonna die near. Like you can't even finish this money, bro. In ten years, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why stress that? Yeah. Yeah. But until we start to have like our own money, um, we can't change the incentive structures because we can't expect someone to do their. It's very hard to tell someone like, oh, don't take any bribes, and your government is paying you like peanuts, and you're hustling to survive, and someone is offering you a bribe to. To, to do something the wrong way. And when you're thinking about it, it's not like, it's not, it's not coming from a position of greed. It's coming from a position of lack. Yeah. Right? So until we change that um, lack into abundance, then you can start to like make more precise uh, character decisions perhaps about people as a leader mm. as you engage them. But like when everyone is poor and someone offers you something small to get out, I think I struggle to call it corruption because... Uh, why are they being corrupted in that way? Like, why is there a need? What what gap is not being made? You know, it's like it's not being met. It's like a form of entrapment almost at scale. Mm. Um, I know that some purists may disagree with me on that, and they're like, "Oh, you're just making excuses for people to be corrupt." But I think, like, if you're gonna look at it objectively. Uh, there needs to be like a minimum threshold of money that you are receiving <laughs> in mm. a month mm. for you to be uh, corruptible in a sense. Otherwise, you're just poor. And you can't blame people for looking for ways out of poverty because yeah. everyone else is, literally everyone else is doing the same thing, you know? So, yeah. yeah, it's tricky. It's really tricky. I hope that with time, people like you and me will get more money. And um, when you have more money, we spend more money. So that injects itself into the economy. Mm. And it continually increases the threshold for the corruptibility of other people and makes them harder to corrupt. Um, some of the most corruption-free societies are functional in nature. So your, your healthcare, your education, uh, your housing, your insurance, your security, all of these things, the government has taken care of you. So you don't have an incentive to be corrupt. Mm. It's only like greed that might entice you. So yeah. I hope in time things get better. That's I think hope. one of the other things that sort of came up or became way more um, 
obvious and clear mm. was like the wide scale corruption that happens um, in some of these countries. Right? Yeah. South African, South Africa being one of like the top ones as well. And I think it was scary for me to see, you know, I sort of, I'm not saying I understand corruption at any sort of point, but like you said, the, yeah. the, the, the incentives are there. Yeah. And there's way too little disincentives, right? So for me, it's like, have African countries, specifically South Africa, done enough to disincentivize people being corrupt, right? And you see things like, you know, there was a, a councillor in the Eastern Cape right? yeah. province that's, you know, quite, it, it's a hard, hard, hard province, right? And um, they were caught. So this guy is a councillor. He was given all the food packages and he happened to catch COVID, passed away. Wow. And when they went to the funeral or whatever, they opened his garage. It was full of just food vouchers that were yeah. made for the community. Palliatives. And you're sitting there going, wait. <laughs> Why you know, are you keeping this stuff, bro? I don't understand corruption at any level, but not at, you know, that's depraved now. Yeah. Now you, you're you not even just like being corrupt. There was another one, again, I think this was in KZN actually, mm. where someone was paid to provide hand sanitizer mm. and they diluted, you know, you need hand sanitizer at a certain level mm. of alcohol. I think it's about 70%. 70%. Yeah, for it to be effective. They diluted it so that they could have more of it, so that they could sell it, <laughs> right? So they can get way more profit Ooh. out of. And you look at these situations, and it's like this is not just corruption anymore. Yeah. You're playing with people's lives. You're putting people at risk. If I use hand sanitizer that's not effective, and I go around thinking, "Oh no, I'm safe," I'm gonna make decisions that probably end up end me up in a very difficult place, right? Absolutely. And even with the food parcels, like this is your community, and. It's almost as if they don't see it as service. And yeah. that's like, it's difficult to, to be in that place where as a public servant, you see yourself in that vein. Yeah. Especially, I think, in South Africa. It's a difficult thing to know, to own, and to actually you know, live by. Like, you are a servant to the people. And I think that's lost. And I think this crisis specifically showed how bad things can get. Like, if you can steal food vouchers, if you, if you can be involved in fraud where they were supposed to give um, unemployed people in South Africa about 350 rand yeah. per month, and that didn't land in the right people's bank account. And there was a guy who got something like 6 million from that. <laughs> and he was caught. But these are not situations where corruption is not a victimless crime. Yeah, And often, more often than not, the the impact is like very long tailed, and by the time it hits people where it really matters, people have forgotten where the root the cause. Started. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, man. And that's that's one of the most difficult uh, ethical dilemmas for me to rationalize because it's difficult to to draw the line on where uh, cause ends and effect begins, right? So, for example, if I, let's say I am unknowingly um, COVID-19 positive today mm. and I infect you and you infect another person who infects another person who infects another person and that person eventually infects somebody who dies, all right? To what extent is that the 
primary infectors fault and to what extent is that the secondary and the tertiary and yours and my fault mm. and remember if i'm unknowingly sick i don't know where or who got it from so like can we just keep passing the blame chain mm. i don't think that's a a practical way of approaching it so um i think people like ultimately decide where to draw the line for themselves right like for you maybe um some type of risk is acceptable another type of risk is not really acceptable for others it might be different but there's no standard to evaluate that objectively so we can uh, discuss this topic all day without coming to conclusion <laughs> um, <laughs> what is what is i think like really important is um trying to do the right thing to the extent that you can uh, as a person and i don't know what justification that somebody might have to like store covid-19 palliatives that are meant for uh people at scale like if you're told like hey this is food that you need to give away the right thing to do is to give it away mm. um yeah but like i i'm trying not to be too judgmental of such people because we don't know what their struggles are but like yeah it's it's definitely inexcusable when it comes out to light like this that this is something that has happened it's hard to empathize for the people uh who are involved i mean mm-hmm. same thing is happening in nigeria now where due to the protests people are like discovering government warehouses where palliatives are being stored and like people are wising up mm. and like for me there's no excuse that the government has to like, if if it was like let the warehouses be empty because people are still you're not solved hunger in your country right mm. um and to that extent you start to see the 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 corruptness of certain types of leaders in certain types of countries i, I don't i i I'm, i'm finding it difficult to comment on south africa's uh, corruption culture specifically because i don't have as much data though i've been reading a lot in the news of people just being arrested everywhere yeah. which i think is a net positive um siro ramaphosa has one of the hardest jobs in the world being <laughs> president of south africa is hard like it's not an easy job to do there's a lot of political pressure more so than many african countries but the hardest job he has to do is be president of south africa while also being the, the president of the the chairperson of the african union mm. so it's a lot yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot what do you think um the role of young people you and me the generation that comes after is in reshaping um what the future of the continent looks like after mm-hmm. the baby boomers eventually they don't have a choice at some point they, they have, have to, to die. they have to go <laughs> right <laughs> what do you I think um what what um what do you think is the responsibility of young people like us value and systems others? Okay. We need to we need to come up with value systems that make sense and that work for us. Um and it would be wonderful if these value systems can be um ingrained in integrity. Um uh, because like the challenges that we have are very different from the challenges as 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 young black Africans specifically. Like my my mom's generation and her mom's generation, she could not be a fintech internet entrepreneur even if she wanted, no matter how skilled she could be, mm. right? So the, the fundamental challenge is different because we're playing in a globalized economy where all of us are information workers and all of a sudden it doesn't really matter where you are born if you can do the work, right? So we're globally competing and you're not just competing with other South Africans, you and Mash are competing for attention um from the world with kids from Singapore mm. <laughs> right mm. and um having a value system that is uh built on top of integrity as a premise it's like you know you need to mean what you say mm. and say what you mean i think like that's a very good start 
And then the rest of the values that we choose for ourselves um, can be whatever we really want them to be based on who you are as people. I'm not here to prescribe what people should value, but as long as we exhibit integrity in expressing those values, mm. then I think it makes life easier for everybody and makes it easier for us to integrate into the global um, economy and society as a whole. If we're able to do this well, then our leaders will command, leaders from our generation will command the same level of attention and respect as leaders from other parts of the world at global fora and summits. When you look at like, you know, um, the World Economic Forum in Davos or uh, the G, G7 thingy in New York, right? Um, when you look at how African leaders are looked at vis-a-vis -vis their European, Chinese, Asian, American um, counterparts, they're not treated with the same level of respect mm. and, and seriousness because it's just like there's a reputation that we have attached to ourselves now as like the being one of the ca uh, poverty capitals of the world, being one of the corruption capitals of the world. Though statistically that might not be true because the same corruption exists in many other parts of the world, but it's mm. colored differently. We have that brand attached to us. Mm. And people look at our brand to make decisions, right? Um, I think a big part of the reason why the U.S. is one of the most globally relevant, if not the most globally relevant economy today, I mean, we base all of our thinking of value in dollars, is because of how it, America's brand works for it. For a very long time, I believe that America was the superhero and custodian of the world's well-being. Yeah. And that has come undone with COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I saw a meme <laughs> where someone was like, you know, the, it was like a, a sort of stick figure and they were like poking like a superhero and they were like, aren't you the one that's supposed to save, save us? us? Exactly. Like, and everyone America, was like, <laughs> America, Where's you the need vaccine? to save us, right? <laughs> and it's, it's so scary to see that sort of brand and mythical superhero, we're going to save the world. Exceptionalism. American yes. exceptionalism. Just come and done in real time. That definitely is a failure of leadership because I know there are many very smart Americans who create a lot of value in the world today. Um, I'm, I'm grateful America, for America's existence. Um, however, it's quite clear that right now, uh, leadership in the U.S. is um, chaotic yeah. at best. Yeah. Um, and the world is uh, seeing that quite clearly. Um, yeah, you know, that is what it is. And I think it actually creates room for other like global actors to start to um, present their narrative more. Mm -hmm. I'm very optimistic. So a lot of people, this is, this is a terribly hot take, um, but I'm actually pretty optimistic about China's influence on Africa. Mm. Um, yeah, like that's my view. Like I'm actually pretty optimistic about some of the things that um, China is doing on the continent. There's been a lot of rhetoric being um, shared all over the world around like, okay, what is China trying to do? And I feel like in American and Western media specifically, China has been painted as the enemy for mm -hmm. some reason. But like when you look at it objectively, like what are Chinese people doing that's any worse than what anyone is from anywhere else in the world is doing particularly? Mm -hmm. like, like what are the Chinese doing that's so bad specifically? Mm -hmm. Right? And I'm not able to identify anything. Uh, that is unique to them as a global actor. Um, if anything, some of the things that they're doing like are a net positive. They're constructing infrastructure. Yes, they're going to own that infrastructure and they're going to capitalize it and they're going to monetize it. But like, 
there wasn't a train where you were before. Mm. My government is not building me train tracks and a train. I need a train to get from A to B. Mm. And the Chinese are bringing me a train. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get on the train, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, I think a thing that's really like, um, and again, I appreciate you for putting me on to Clubhouse. And the sort of conversation you're talking about is something that I've seen a bunch of times in, in rooms that you have. So Wizard runs one of the best communities on Clubhouse, which is <laughs> Sankara Lounge. And, you know, the one thing that I've always said, and people don't like that I say this, but mm. South Africans, we have this, uh, we have blinders on. As South <laughs> That's Africans. true. We have these blinders <laughs> where we think, you know, South Africa is the continent and the continent is great, but... South Africa is greater, right? Yeah, and we have true. this we have this cocoon mindset where we are the best and everything that is us is great, right? Yeah. And I think those sessions, whether it's Sankara Lounge or a few others I've joined, have really showed me just like how real things are beyond just the Limpopo border, which is sort of the northernmost part mm-hmm. of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tweet this and I couldn't. I was like, <laughs> you know, if you humble yourself and you just keep quiet for a little bit and you go on the internet and mm. understand what's happening in Kenya, what's happening in Nigeria, what's happening in Ghana, what's happening in Egypt, but just like across the continent, if you went and looked at what entrepreneurs, small businesses and startups are doing, you will really be humble. You, yeah. might, you, might, you might shut up a little bit as a South African because you'll start to actually realize, oh, wait. We just have really good PR. Absolutely. I mean, um, I've, I've lived in Malawi. I've lived in Kenya. I've spent a lot of time in many parts of the continent, West Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda. Uh, I, I think I speak quite authoritatively when I say, in general, uh, from most perspectives, life is easier in SA mm. than in many other parts of the continent. It's not the best. It's not... Incredible. Yes, there are challenges. There are some very unique challenges. For example, the the violence against women here is absurd. Yeah, that's the only word to describe. It's a crisis. It. What's going on? Like, it's a crisis. Why do people hate women so much? It's a crisis. <laughs> but, it's not being treated as such, but it's a crisis. Yeah, some things are horrible, but like life in general is easier for many types of people in SA. And I feel that many South Africans uh, take this for granted. And it's not a thing that's unique to South Africans. Everyone from a certain land, when you become too familiar, you start to take for granted the things that you don't even know are good. Mm. But only when you're exposed to other societies, when you realize like, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty good thing that we have going on. There's so many things that I take for granted about Malawi. Uh, my foreign friends who are living in Malawi are doing extremely well for themselves, mm. exploiting opportunities that I can never see as a Malawian. Mm. Um, and that's like, that's like part of the human condition in general. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you know, it generally is a, a very different environment outside of South Africa to for entrepreneurs. The challenges are fundamentally different in nature. I wouldn't go as far as claiming that they are more challenging, mm. but I think because... South Africa as an economy, there's more money flowing in the economy, right? I think South Africa's GDP, um, let me pull that number up, was uh, 368.3 billion US dollars in 2018. Um, one of the biggest on the continent, definitely in the top three. I think it's Nigeria, maybe Egypt, Morocco, then SA, or mm. Nigeria, SA. I don't even know, but like 
is big. So the chances of you as Mashudu uh, colliding with one of these $368.3 billion, because you're only like 60 million people, mm. the chances of you colliding with this are more so than me as a Malawian. Um, Malawi's uh, GDP per capita is uh, $398.4 in 2018, meaning that uh, for every Malawian, they are essentially three hundred and $89 that they are likely to collide with, right? Mm. In, in South Africa, there are $6,374 for every South African that they are likely to collide with. Mm. So, yes, you, it's it's easier mm. <laughs> in some ways by several orders of magnitude. Um, I think some South African entrepreneurs take that for granted. I don't fault them for it, but like it is, it is part of the human condition. And I think that um, there's definitely benefits in looking at what's possible outside of SA. Though one can come and like build a business in SA and like make more money in SA than they would in three or four other countries surrounding it because of those mm. uh, quantitative economic figures, which you can't challenge. Like this is, this, this is math, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I don't have a position on that. I think um, I would love it if more South African entrepreneurs got more excited about the continent, but I don't blame them for not... Uh, taking it as seriously because on uh, on a cash basis in terms of today's value uh, it doesn't make the most business sense do I think that there are more powerful stories you can tell and more incredible things you can achieve one of the most uh, exciting things I think for me this year has been Stripe's acquisition of Paystack the mm. Nigerian uh, payments company that is mostly active in Nigeria, but now they're in Ghana and they launched in South Africa very recently as well. But this is a company that's operating in three markets. And they were acquired um, by Stripe in excess of uh, $200 million. My sources uh, put it at around at least 250. That's, mm. that's, that's the number that uh, I'm getting from people that I'm talking to. And um, when you look at it, like I expect that a lot of the deals like Stripe stock and Stripe is about to IPO, so that stock is going, that stock is going to indefinitely. Like, there's a very slim chance that it won't increase in value. Mm. So, when three or four years down the line, and 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 Paystack is going to continue operating as an independent company outside of Stripe. I confirmed this by talking to um, uh, Paystack CEO Shola Nakinlali, who f- fortunately is a friend. Mm. Hey, I hope that one day I also the exit soon. <laughs> 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 Uh, you know, you're the sum of the people you spend the most time with. So. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if this guy who's on my WhatsApp contacts can exit for 200 plus million, it's possible. <laughs> it becomes way more Bro, possible, right? Like, you know. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I'm envisioning a scenario where over the next five years, Stripe IPOs and the value of their stock is maybe five, ten, perhaps twenty x what it is today, right? Um, yeah. Shopify, when did Shopify IPO? Shopify IPO'd in May 2015, I think. Yeah. Shopify. It's, it's, it's super interesting. And the numbers are insane. But more than that, like, what do those numbers mean? Shopify, Okay. they IPO'd at $32 a share on 30th of October um, 2015. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the data, the best data that I can have. So there, the price of each Shopify share was $32. Five years later, the price of a Shopify share today, that five years ago was worth $32.22. Each individual share as of today, the 23rd of October 2020, which is when the, the stock market uh, in Canada closed, 
the share price is at one thousand and twenty-six dollars, um, right? Whoa. So if you do one thousand and twenty-six, let me open Yumi and, and do some quick math. I failed math at O level, so I really rely on calculators. <laughs> I really did, bro. Like, <laughs> and I thought that I would never be successful because of that. It's very interesting <laughs> how your school, high school results mean absolutely nothing now. <laughs> I know they mean nothing. <laughs> so. If you put if you put in a uh, hundred rand at uh, in at Shopify's IPO in uh, 2015, um, that money would be worth uh, three thousand one hundred rands today. Wild. Five years later, thirty-one point seven three x. The numbers speak for themselves. So, like now, the Paystack founders. I'm pretty sure Stripe. Stripe is going to be a global payments company. Mm. Stripe is the US. Is people are already comparing Stripe and Google. And when you look at like the culture, the product, and how much people love it. I don't think those parallels are uh, far-fetched. Mm. So if these guys hold on this money, um, they could be easily exiting for some ridiculous multiple. Let's, let's, let's be conservative and say within the next five years, Stripe IPOs and gets to at least a 10-year multiple, mm. which is not unrealistic looking at their path and how they've grown, you know? So they get to like a 10-year, uh, 10, 10, 10, 10x multiple in five years. It means that the money that let us also be like very conservative and say um, the founders of Paystack maybe had twenty percent of the company at exit. Like, mm. They've only raised one round, so it's really unlikely. I think they have over sixty percent ownership. Yep. But let's be like extra conservative and say they have twenty percent ownership, right? And let's say they exited at two hundred million dollars. So twenty over two hundred, um, that's like what twenty percent. 20 over 100 times uh, 200M, that's 40 million between them. So 20 million each. 20 million um, times 10X in the next five years from... It means each individual founder has $20 million. Let's convert $200 million to ZAR. $20 million is 3.2 billion rand. Wow, man. Per person. And somebody should not come and yap on Twitter that the Paystack founders exited too early. Go and build your own. Like... <laughs> <laughs> what does this acquisition mean for the ecosystem? It's fantastic news. It's a great example. Um, for the past few years, and you know, the, the, the African tech ecosystem is still in its infancy. Um, for the last few years, we've seen a lot of investment come in. On average, as of last year, it was between $1 and $2 billion, depending on who you ask. Mm. Um, we've seen this investment come in, right? And you know, rounds as small as $100,000 to rounds as large as... $120 million for OPE, $40 million for Palm Pay, et cetera. I think 54 for, for Flutterwave, how was fundraising? Flutterwave Series B, I think it was 40, 35 million. Mm. Um, you've seen these like pretty large uh, fundraising rounds, but people are like, okay, where's all this money going? And where's it going to come out? Paystack didn't exist six years ago. Mm. It was just an idea, a concept. Yeah. But in five years, these two founders have been able to put together a team of between 80 to 100 people, I believe, and build this extremely useful company that is creating value for customers, shareholders, employees, and investors, and exit at a fantastic multiple. Imagine working for five years and cashing out with a $20 million payday. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that's a, that's like worst case. I'm... I'm I don't have any authoritative numbers, and even if I did, I couldn't speak to it. Um, but I'm pretty sure that between the founders, they own at least 50. They only raised once, mm. Series A, mm. right? And dilution at Series A, even if you get, like, really, really bad terms, you're looking at possibly 30% of effective ownership that you're giving away, 
right? So um, I'm pretty sure they're okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're fine. It's yeah. not nice to count money in other people's pockets, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I read this quote around ecosystems and specifically Silicon Valley and how um, sort of the money flowing into founders' pockets into people that were part of the company very early mm. was super instrumental in building the ecosystem because those people go out of that company yeah. and they create new value, whether yeah. as venture capitalists, as um Entrepreneurs. Angel investors, entrepreneurs, starting something new. And that sort of cycle going on and on where successful founders plow back into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see not just this Paystack acquisition, but like future acquisitions as well, having that same impact and growing the ecosystem at large um, and having that sort of impact across the ecosystem and changing things for entrepreneurs and startups on the ground? Absolutely. Um, I want to highlight a Nigerian entrepreneur uh, called Abdul, who's a former uh, product manager at Paystack. Mm. And like his startup, Mono, I'm looking at an article here, they just raised $500,000 in pre-seed funding for mm. a product. And uh, Abdul and his team are incredibly talented. I've had the pleasure of talking to him before. I know that he's like super talented. But at the same time, I know that quite a bit of it are some tips and tricks he learned um, at Paystack and mm. Paystack's culture, right? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, definitely. I think we're going to be seeing um, value trickle over and like uh, shoot across uh, certain types of organizations in the ecosystem that just like create the type of people who create value. Mm. And I'm pretty excited about it because this is how Silicon Valley's ecosystem grew. There was like, it's founders who are backing other founders as mm. angel investors because stuff is hard bro yeah it really is um so and harder during a pandemic in a pandemic bro it is just like i don't know i don't know it's just been a lot and um i'm happy to see it i think we're gonna see more and more people come out of pay stacks i think we're gonna see more pay stacks um the one of the 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 other deals that's super exciting for me this year was um mfs is our africa's acquisition of bionic the Mm. east african and west african payments company mfs africa is headquartered here um, for an undisclosed amount, mm. I'll not say more. Uh, and then also uh, Network International, uh, the the UAE based payments giant who acquired uh, DPO for two hundred and ninety. Okay, Network International DPO acquisition. Let me Google. Should not lie on media. Two hundred and eighty eight million dollars. Yeah. In July twenty twenty. Mm. Those are not bad outcomes, you know. Yeah. Those are not bad outcomes at all, um, especially for an ecosystem this early. If we continue to keep this up, and I think we will because the ecosystem opportunity is there and there is a market for these things. Like These companies are not, they're not being valued by idiots. Mm. The people who are valuing these companies, are they know what they're doing. And Stripe is getting in cheap for Africa, mm. really, at $200 million. They're getting in cheap and they're going to make the most of it. And way more money is going to be created from this and way more value, way more entrepreneurs, way more investors, you know. You know, like, if we inject money into the ecosystem, the more chances that a dollar is going to... It's going to hit you. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, with the, um, what's the future of Africa for entrepreneurs, small businesses and startups? What should people be looking out for? Um, what should the focus be? A growing market, I think. Uh, that's what I'm optimistic about. A growing market for everything as more and more Africans are rising into 
middle class and getting access to money and credit for the first time because of um, technology solutions. You know, like I, I would one day want to see a credit economy as vibrant as South Africa's for the rest of the continent because it lowers the barrier to access for so many things. Um, but yeah, I think people can look forward to uh, a growing um, middle class and a much larger market for things. And, and crypto. I think crypto is quite very unique. You're so heavy on crypto. I know, I've become a crypto tech bro. <laughs> I, I can't believe it, but like I'm very big on crypto right now. And um, there's a lot to, to see. There's a lot to see. So yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think we have a lot to be optimistic for. Um, it's been a tough year. Thank God we're surviving COVID so far. For those of us that are surviving, um, if if you've lost somebody, I'm well and deeply sorry. Like I don't want to minimize your pain. Um, it's a terrible thing to go through, and I wish it weren't so. But you know, this is the the. the the nature of the world that we're living in today and the reality that we, we're facing and um, there are no easy choices to be made. So, yeah, I don't want to say too much more than that. Um, got nothing but love for the continent and the people and thanks for letting me rant, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Wiza. Really appreciate it. Version 2. I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> cool.